Hey everyone, this is Will from Beijing, China, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, in the year of 2022, if you follow the news closely, that this year it's so crucial for China. And given the fact that this year marks the 10th anniversary for the Belt and Road Initiative, and of course, it's such a major milestone for the country of China and also for the current leader in China, Xi Jinping. Now, when we talk about Belt and Road Initiative, that we know not only the countries in Southeast Asia have actively signed up to join the project, but also lately, a lot more countries in Latin America's also join this project for the greater benefits. And Brazil, it's one of the crucial members and crucial allies with the country of China, as well as with the United States of America. But this year also marked the significant milestone for the presidential election in Brazil. And we know that the current leader, Bolsonaro, is facing some major criticism from the mask mandate to internal economic turmoil. And the competitors are hoping to run more policies and demonstrating much greater future, not only for the people in Brazil, but also to the international citizens outside the country. So that's why today it's my great honor to invite Dr. Marcus Fritas. And you remember the show that Dr. Marcus, it's a senior fellow at Policy Center for the New South, focusing on international law, international relations, and in Brazil. And he's currently a visiting professor of international law and international relations at China Foreign Affairs University in Beijing, China. He was also the president of the Sao Paulo Directorate of the Progressive Party, having run for vice governor of the state of Sao Paulo in 2010, where his party pulled in third place with more than 1.2 million voters. So without further ado, Dr. Marcus, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, uh, somehow help and contribute a little on what is going on around the world, and this time on Brazil. Well, Dr. Marcus, you're too modest. And again, I always say each time when I have such undistinguished guests like you to join the show, not only that you are contributing not just a little, but in a great margin that help us to understand a lot more regarding this international affairs. Now, again, let's get started with the country of Brazil. Dr. Marcus, we know that you are such an expert. Now, can you help us to understand why is this upcoming election in Brazil is so crucial? And that's the first question. And the second one is, again, as I mentioned in the intro, the current president in Brazil is facing a lot more criticism in terms of this mask mandate and also this economic collapse. And even though one time, if I can uh, remember correctly from the article, he called our weapon is the vaccine. So again, with everything going on, how should we see the progressive move movement under the current leader? Well, those are very tough questions to address. Uh, but let me try to break them a little, right? Um, you currently have a dispute between the current president and the former Lula da Silva, who was in prison due to corruption charges. Mm. Now, we all know that the process in which Lula became a free man and all that 
was not the most transparent because, in a way, he has counted on the support of former judges that he appointed to be members of the Supreme Court. Mm. So there's a whole issue in that sense. But he's a candidate. He's very popular because during his government, Brazil grew. We had, you know, not China, not Chinese rates of growth, but was a lot compared to what we had previously. And the country somehow reached uh, a certain level of international reputation. We became member of BRICS. And the partnership with China also grew at the time because China was buying a lot of things and was starting to become, I uh, started the process of becoming Brazil's number one trading partner. So those are important issues that happen in his government, which generate a positive memory of the results of his administration, mm -hmm. right? Uh, of course, after two years of his, after two terms of his government, the country went through a very complicated period in which the person he appointed, not he appointed, but he suggested and got elected to be president, Ms. Dilma da Silva, uh, Dilma Rousseff, she didn't do so well in the government. And the reason why uh, she was impeached was not only because of the problems that her administration faced, but also because of the country's situation, right? Mm. And Brazil started, you know, a very negative process, was going down the hill. And then we got, like, the vice president to become, you know, the president of Brazil, an interim term of two years, and then Bolsonaro got elected. So we have to remember here that the great elector of Bolsonaro was Lula and his political party in the past, mm. because it was the policies adopted by them that uh, somehow generated this uh, process in which Bolsonaro became like an emergent. He was a leader, but he became like the emergent leader in the process. So Lula, in a way, was a great elector and a great voter for Bolsonaro because mm. of the problems that there was in his government of corruption and all that. Now, Bolsonaro, on the other hand, um, wasn't like the most well-prepared candidate to become president of Brazil. And uh, and he tried, in a way, uh, to be like the Trump of South America, mm. right? He wanted to adopt some policies. He wanted to get Brazil closer to the United States. He had like this, you know, really uh, strange war against communism that he decided mm. that he was going to be saving the world and bringing freedom to Brazil. But the greatest problem that he had is that despite the fact that the economy is not doing as bad as it was before, mm. the problem is that during the pandemic, he adopted a very confusing uh, strategy. First, people felt that he was a denialist, right? Mm. He was denying the, uh, denial and that there was a virus that we should be concerned about it. And then he went to trying to to get people to use uh, hydrocracy chloroquine uh, as the medicine that would solve all the problems. So he adopted very conflictive uh, positions in the process. And the result is that Brazil had one of the highest numbers of uh, contamination and deaths due to COVID. Mm. And, and even the issue of vaccination, uh, which Brazil has a long history, tradition of vaccination, even that was affected by it. He might, and then he decided to blame the Brazilian Supreme 
courts that they decided that, you know, it, uh, the federal government was not the one that was going to run the show on the pandemic and the whole country situation in that sense deteriorated. Of course, what I could say, and if I could summarize the problem of this election, is that this is a real bipolar election. Bipolar in the sense that we have two extremes, right? Mm. Radical approaches, one really opposes the other, uh, but their methodology of working is a little similar. So they're very distant in the political discourse, but similar somehow in the way they act. And bipolar in the sense that, you know, the people are becoming insane mm. in, that, uh, in this approach, right? You know, this issue has divided the country. And the problem is this, well, no matter who gets elected, the country is going to be split. Mm. And none of them, either Bolsonaro or Lula, has the capability to, you know, try to heal the country and get everything together. Now, that's the problem, right? Because you need to have that kind of, uh, you know, not unanimity, but you need to have this uh, condition for people to work together so that we can actually define what are the strategies that the country is going to follow in the future. Should we increase our partnership with China or should we focus on the United States? Mm. Should we focus on Europe or should we focus on China? And I've been saying this uh, for a long time. I think that the partnership and the relationship with the United States and the European Union the gains that we're going to have are going to be very marginal, mm. while the relationship with China can be really substantial, right? I just look at the numbers, see the Chinese market, and I see a lot of potential that could be developed between the two. I think Bolsonaro initially was betting on the U.S. and the European Union, and he has found out the hard way that these partnerships are not delivering the results that he expected. Mm. So no matter who the president is, uh, both will need to have a good working relationship with China because the future of Brazil, and uh, it's not that it depends on China, but it will greatly advance if we have a good working relationship with Beijing. Mm. You know, Dr. Marcus, before we have the country of U.S. get into the conversation, I think on one hand, and no one predicted that the war in Ukraine not only shocked the people in Ukraine, but also for the entire international community. So in other words, for so long that everyone thought Vladimir Putin was bluffing, but eventually he put action behind the words. And of course, until today, that we can prove that the result has been very much devastating. But on the other hand, Dr. Marcus, when we mentioned the country of Brazil and we mentioned China and also we mentioned um, Russia as well, there was a solid committee or there's a solid commitment that we're facing today is the, com is the organization called BRICS. So in other words, there's a strong economic ties that bring all these countries together, that link all of them together. Now, Bolsonaro, she has, I mean, he has been very active in participating and also con uh, consolidating his relationship with country, you know, with China and also South Africa and etc. So from your perspective, Dr. Marcus, how would you rate the role of Brazil 
in the organization of BRICS today. So in other words, how would you think that the current leader is evaluating or balancing the relationship with China and the U.S.? I think that there was one major problem in this whole issue. Mm. The problem is that when you look into BRICS, and believe me, I am a supporter of BRICS. I think there is a lot of things that can be done within BRICS. And, and uh, it gives Brazil a different perspective as an emerging country mm. because we have access to the two largest uh, markets in the world, like, you know, India and China, even though China has much more purchasing power, much higher purchasing power than China and than India. But you see that in the long run, as projections grow, India is also going to become a relevant country and mm. a relevant market to look into. But I think, you know, the fact that we can meet the president of China and we can talk to President Xi Jinping and to the leadership of China in a more direct way, I think it's a great advantage for China and for Brazil. Mm. Uh, but the problem is that uh, we have seen that many analysts and many people have fallen into the trap of saying that, oh, first of all, the economies uh, are, they compete among themselves, they do not have things that will generate the necessary synergies. And the issue, I think, is that we look too much in that sense to try to make bricks like G7, mm. right? The group of seven countries that comprise like the wealthiest countries in the world. But as we look into the dynamics of G7, uh, we also see that they have many internal challenges and that the results that they have delivered are not as strong as people thought or people believe it is. So I think that uh, the great mistakes for Brazilians not to have bet more on BRICS has been, you know, this, uh, first of all, trying to emulate the G7 and also listening to the voices coming from the United States and from the European Union and, you know, from other places, but particularly from the European Union in the United States, that somehow tried to uh, diminish the relevance of BRICS, right? Uh, saying that it was not going to go anywhere and all that. So I think that Brazilians, in a way, absorbed this negative perspective on mm. BRICS and uh, much to its... Uh, uh, contrary to its interest, because uh, I think that BRICS is truly an important alternative. And I think that one of the positive things, uh, I'd say that in the relationship with Russia, for instance, you remember, you might recall that Bolsonaro went to uh, to Moscow, that's right. Despite the opposition of the of the U.S. government, that's right. But with that, he kind of guaranteed access to fertilizers. So I think that this was an important step in the sense that hey, we have the G7 as a world order, but we also have the BRICS, and I think the BRICS can really uh, work out as something that uh, will reflect this new reality of countries that are. Uh, growing, emerging, they still have their own, they face their own challenges, but in a sense, they have more of the pulse of the world mm. than the G7 nations that have been established uh, in their economic wealth and somehow uh, are not really matching the desires of the common 
needs of countries, countries that are developing. And that's why you see many countries trying to associate themselves also with BRICS. Mm. Dr. Marcus, again, I want to go back to the competitor with Bolsonaro, Lula. According to one article on foreign affairs, and again, it says that when Lula tap into this political arena, number one, he's not a stranger to this political atmosphere, but also he's running on this ideology that what we called liberty against socialism. So Dr. Marcus, from your perspective, can you help us to understand a little bit more regarding Lula's political strategy as well as this economic policy? I mean, given this condition, you know, when we say, when we look at Donald Trump uh, 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 in the White House, voters believe that he was the voice for the middle class. You know, again, the uh, the wealth gap was much wider and uh, American voters were sick and tired of this. Politicians only uh, 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 talk the talk, but not walk the walk. But as soon as the Donald Trump appeared on this international stage, that he played this campaign or he built himself as people person. So in other words, you know, bring the middle class back or bring the job back, you know, everything he he said and, and everything that uh, he wished to accomplish. But from Lula's perspective in Brazil, how should we understand this liberty against the socialism? You know, how should we understand or comprehend this economic policy under this candidate? Okay. Uh, the reason for that is that, uh, President Bolsonaro, and that's why I say, you know, I feel when I look into the elections in Brazil, I feel like we went back into, uh, we went, you know, we went back on the clock to 1988 mm. without the fall of the Berlin Wall mm. or the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we see this polarization, you know, even uh, with this idea that Lula somehow represents a Soviet communist system, that people are not going to have freedom, that everything is going to be denied, there won't be any freedom at all. And Bolsonaro comes to this liberal, yet remember that in the economics is not doing as well as people expected, mm. uh, and, but he comes with his freedom speech. So he, so we have this fight, oh, you know, if you are pro-Bolsonaro, you are, you know, in favor of freedom, if you like Lula, you you defend socialism and all that. But it's not true, right? Because, it's, as I said before, both candidates, uh, they might sound ideologically diverse, right? Uh, very different and very distant. But what you realize is that on the way they work and the way they, they manage the public administration and the way they speed the wills or in the way they move the wills in politics, you do see that there is a similarity in the way they do things because both are populist leaders and they try to use their populism uh, to advance their agendas, their political agendas. Uh, but that's the, that's the issue. That's this bipolar society that we have seen that has created all these, you know, dynamics that you'd have to have one speech against the other. Mm. Now, you do see in the case of Trump that you mentioned that many Americans nowadays are, you know, missing Donald Trump because the option <laughs> of Joe Biden wasn't necessarily what was expected or, you know, Joe Biden hasn't been able to deliver 
what he's promised. And then you have some people that are nostalgic about Trump. And I think, you know, even uh, some people in the media miss Donald Trump because, you know, Biden is not every day on the newspaper. Right. Like Trump you know, always was. But in that sense, what you observe is this. Uh, there, there is uh, this clash, right, uh, between the two perspectives on the economy and their two perspectives on the political way of doing things. But at the end of the day, uh, the methodology seems to be very close to each other. Now, what is the fear about one and what is the fear about the other, right? Which is a question that people ask me all the time. So what is going to happen? And said, well, first of all, do not think, do not best. You know, Americans like to say, do not bet against America mm. uh, because you'll be frustrated. But I would say the same thing. You know, Brazil is such a large country. It's the fourth, it's the fifth largest country in the world, full of economic resources, full of, you know, uh, we have a huge jungle. We still have a lot of uh, things to explore. So it is a country that only has future, right? And it has... Uh, and I always say this, you know, Brazil could be an amusement park for Chinese infrastructure because mm. there's so many things that can be built and still need to be built in Brazil. So I wouldn't bet against the country because the country is has many positives, um, well, many more positives than negatives, right? Uh, so in that sense, I wouldn't go in this direction. Mm. But um, what is a negative thing that might happen? Well, first of all, if Lula gets elected, I think that some of the uh, practices that were applied in the past, even including corruption, uh, could come back. Mm. And also, I do not know whether his government will be a healing government or a persecution government. Mm. Right? He's going to go after the people who sent him to jail and will have, you know, uh, an over, uh, you know, Perhaps he will try to revenge some of the things that his party went through and his political friends went through just because of the situation. So my friend, my, my fear when it comes to him is the fear of a government of revenge that is not going really that is not really going to help Brazil evolve and reach the place that it deserves, right? Mm. Now, on the other hand, what well, is my fear about Bolsonaro? Well, my fear about Bolsonaro is that uh, perhaps the way he does things and uh, perhaps uh, some of the practices that he has applied uh, are not really going to help Brazil a lot in the sense that somehow, because of his lack of capacity of interacting internationally and a bad real bad meat exposure. He's not the first one, but, you know, his media uh, exposure is not so positive. Mm. And because of that, Brazil is ostracized internationally, and we miss opportunities, right? Uh, because people are going to associate us with some of the not-so-intelligent stuff that he might say. Mm. And uh, so that is my fear. On one side, revenge, and on the other side, opportunities lost because of an incapacity really to manage the country in a way that the country deserves to be managed and reaches its potential. Dr. Marcus, when you answer the previous question, I appreciate that you used the one word was called polarization. 
You know, when we use the word polarization, and for example, let's look at what's happening in the U.S. today. Again, as Joe Biden was campaigning as the presidential candidate, he sent this strong message in the midst of the division internally, he was hoping that to bring the people and the parties together. But that was a couple years ago. But right now, U.S. today is divided more than ever. You know, we could say it's no longer just about polarization. It's more about division. It's more about, you know, policy disagreement and even coming to social, political or economic situations. Now, this is not something that we all want to see happening in any other country whatsoever. But again, Dr. Marcus, from your perspective, if polarization is taking place in Brazil today, how does that affect the people? That's number one. Number two is in terms of the voters, you know, again, the constituents, they're voting for the next person. They're voting for the next president. What are or what is the most important thing that among the voters are looking for? Is it political agenda? Is it international affairs? Or is it about uh, um, economic uh, uh, equality? So in other words, hey, listen, as American, they will say, people live in the White House. You can screw up the country as much as you want. But I just want to have a decent job and I want to have money in my pocket and saving in my bank account so I'm able to live and afford for the rest of the couple of my uh, years of my life. So again, Dr. Marcus, from your perspective, what do voters are actually looking for in this election? Uh, you bring very two, two very good points, right? People would say vote with their pockets, right? If their pocket is empty, you have to blame somebody, right? If you do not have food on the plate, you have to put uh, to blame somebody. That's right. Uh, somebody. And usually the person who is responsible for that is the political, the economic policies that are not working well. I do sense that, you know, it is an important issue here. But you also need to realize that both candidates have real bad uh, media image, mm. right? One, Lula is perceived as a, you know, as a thief. And the other one is, a, you know, somebody who committed genocide. So that's mm. how the media portrays both of them. Of course, Lula does count on a positive uh, perspective because many people in the media kind of favor his return. Mm. Uh, despite the fact that he's going around saying that he's going to create, you know, a social control over the media. So we do see these things happening. Uh, but that's the challenge that, that you face and the electorate will use the vote but you also have to add one little factor that in the sense uh many people also vote with their hearts mm. and because of our of our latino blood and all that uh people also add emotions to how they're voting right uh so many people are going to remember uh the pandemic or they're going to remember the uh, the corruption. So this is a very sad election because people are vote. They're they're not voting based on hope, right? They hope mm. that by electing this candidate, things are going to get better. But they're voting out of two things, two bad feelings. One is hatred, and the other one is. Uh, fear right oh i fear that this candidate comes back 
or I hate this candidate, mm. and that's why I'm voting in the other one. So this is not a good equation when you're voting, right? Mm. Out of fear of hatred. You know, that's not something that you want because you're not really managing the purpose of an election, right. or uh, which is basically to somehow uh, bring hope to people, right? You know, and, uh, and that's not a good thing. But we seem to have, you know, we always had polarized elections, right? Uh, the French always say, you know, in France, they have two election rounds. And they say that in the first round, you select. In the second one, you basically eliminate, like mm -hmm. the candidate that you don't like. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, and that happens when you have two rounds of election. But the problem is, and, that, and that's what I think is that usually after the elections, you should have a moment in which the president has some peace to govern or to do or to implement the measures. But the problem today with this radicalization in society, you know, there is no, there is no, no honeymoon mm. with power anymore. And people cannot deliver as much because immediately the opposition starts. And, and then you start saying, okay, this system is going to work really if you have opposition all the time. Because, you know, somehow when I, we may disagree in many things, but there are issues that we agree, mm. right? And I think that is something that has been lost. Now, what is the factor for this? I think that social media, mm. in a way, has, you know, uh, added more to this division, right? Because nowadays, everybody has an opinion about everything. That's right. Which is not bad. I'm, I'm not complaining here, and I'm not saying that people are not entitled to have opinions. But the problem is that this gets shared and then we try to build up and people do not have sometimes even uh, the opportunity to defend themselves. The problem with social media is that the court of public opinion is too quick to condemn and doesn't do any effort to forgive or to erase something that was, that was bad. Mm. So I always recall here a statement by Winston Churchill then he said that the greatest argument against democracy was a five-minute conversation with the average voter, <laughs> right? And uh, if you, and I'm not saying I'm not trying to be a, an elitist or aristocrat here, but I think that the problem nowadays with social media is that uh, we're trying to give people to make real difficult decisions without full of understanding mm. or without making them realize. Uh, the impact of their decisions. Mm. And the most important one, certainly, is the election. So sometimes people vote with their pocket, with their emotion, but they're not realizing, okay, is the country going to be, be better off four years from mm. now, or is it going to be in the same situation or worse? Dr. Marcus, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's fast forward. This week, more leaders in the countries of Southeast Asia, you know, again, what we called ASEAN, and they all, they were all invited to the White House to meet up with the current president, Joe Biden. 
And again, based on this summit, and Joe Biden is trying very hard to send this message to consolidate the power between U.S. and the key countries in Southeast Asia. Now, that could be seen as a major problem for China, because we know that China is on the rise, you know, politically and economically. Now, Dr. Marcus, I want to get your reaction why do you think that Joe Biden or the U.S. government is so active in building up or strengthening strengthening the relationship with the countries in Southeast Asia? And do you think that could be a major economic threat to China in the long run? I, as I said to you, um, I'm not going to bet against the United States. Uh, but as I said to you before, too, uh, I also mentioned to you that the gains that Brazil w- would have in improving its relationship with the United States and uh, the European Union is going to be were going to be incremental, not really substantial. Mm. And I think that these countries have to realize that the United States does not have the same capability that they had in the past for investment or for strategies. And I think that people, I think you always need to look into the past and learn the lessons from the past. You know, these countries, many of them realized that when there was the Asian financial crisis, that the United States didn't adopt like the best, you know, friendly position towards them. Uh, so you need to evaluate, uh, not only out of fear, that's what I say, right? You know, you do not build relationships out of fear. Mm. You build relationships out of hope, right? Uh, and I think that when you're looking into the situation, even though perhaps the U.S. might have a little different discourse than China, uh, but I think that uh, as I look into the future of Asia, I cannot uh, disregard the important role, an ever-growing role, that China will have in the region and in the world as a global power. So I think that's an important aspect to, to remember here. Second thing is that the United States, unfortunately, uh, is a declining power, mm-hmm. right? In the sense that the numbers that the U.S. had in the past, and I'm not saying this in a negative way or it's sure. declining because it's doomed, but I'm saying I'm just looking at the numbers that the U.S. had in the past and the numbers that the U.S. has now, and you're going to see that there is a decline. Right, which is not bad because the world is uh, one of the great things that we like about the world is the changes that it always has. That's right. Like, you know, for 1800 years, China was also the number one country in the world. Now, for the last 200 years, it hasn't been the case that it's coming back to its historical position. So, I do not think that uh, we should uh, really fear change because change is what really has made the world evolve and progress. Now, there is a lot of fear in some people because of this possibility of the U.S. no longer being like the most relevant uh, global player. But I think it's a normal part of, you know, the cycle. Mm. You, know, you have ups and downs and you have, and you have change. And, uh, and I think that there will be a point in which the Americans are going to realize that. Now, what is the problem? I think, and this is my third and last point here. The question really is, can the United States fight two Cold Wars Mm. at the same time? Can the U.S. fight? Because the United States will not be able to 
to disengage out of European, uh, out, out of European conflicts, right? They might try to do it, but it's impossible because Europeans still, uh, depend a lot on NATO. And you see with Sweden and Finland entering NATO, this shows that there is no real European security arrangement. They still rely a lot on the United States. And I doubt, and I still, uh, I still think, I do not think that China, that Russia is going to be totally destroyed after this war. Mm. We still do not know the results, but you know, uh, I think that it could be very negative for the West if, uh, Russia wins because it will be a sign of real extreme weakness that the West is going through. So that's an aspect. And the other Cold War that the U.S. is trying to, to fight, and you mentioned that, you know, is to try, somehow try to reduce uh, China's uh, presence in, in, in Asia, right? And That's trying right. to affect, you know, the growing presence of China in Asia, and not only in Asia, but in Africa and all over the world. So you do see a lot of comments and negative uh, advertisement, and I see, I watch the news sometimes, uh, and you see that there is an effort, but two Cold Wars at the same time might be very expensive even for the richest country in the world. Mm. Dr. Marcus, I want to end our conversation with a very simple question. We are only two years away from 2024, and Donald Trump has not gone away from this political stage yet. Throughout the entire mainstream media that people are saying or asking the question if Donald Trump is willing to come back to the White House, continue to uh, govern this country as the next presidential candidate. And Dr. Marcus, the question is very simple. What do you think is going to happen to the U.S. if Donald Trump were to decide to come back to the stage uh, to join this political fight and eventually, hypothetically, won this election again? Would you think that America, this country today, it's willing or uh, better yet, it's well prepared to receive someone like Donald Trump again. You know, that is, the, I wouldn't say the million dollar question, but the <laughs> billion dollar question, right? You see, if you are an American today and you're looking into the economic results of the Biden administration and the deterioration of the situation in the U.S., of course, the economy is doing well, right? But the seeds are planted before. It's never, it, it's never the result of the current president. Like, you no, know, people said that Trump was doing well economically because Barack Obama had planted, right? Mm. And if the economy is doing well uh, in the U.S., of course, it's the result of the policies that were adopted in the previous uh, term, and that was President Donald Trump. Now, the problem is this: you see that the Democrats, in a sense, are trying everything they can right, uh, to avoid losing the majority in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. Uh, I think that the leakage of the, of the Roe versus Wade uh, Supreme Court, you know, mm. the possible decision on that and possible change in that, is somehow trying to make that an effort. And, and, and that's an interesting aspect, because with that, they kind of cover the discussion on the high inflation level that the United States currently has, which President Biden is actually blaming on Putin, mm. right? Uh, as if the war that started two months ago was responsible for the chaotic 
situation that has led to inflation going up in the U.S. So all these things, and we're going to see through the midterms, whether Donald Trump has a possibility of coming back. Now, he is going to be an old guy. So I would think that you know, perhaps he might say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, here is Ivanka. Vote for Ivanka as the next president of the United States. But for the Democrats, uh, Donald Trump is an ideal candidate because mm. he has uh, the, the, you know, the invasion of the Capitol as something that they're going to bring all the time mm. uh, as an argument against him, right? Uh, so you will see that happening. And the ones that are nostalgic about Trump are going to bring the issue of the economy and how well he has done. Now, can the world survive another Trump term? I think so, right? I think we can. Uh, because it would only be one term, as far as I know. I do not think that he would be uh, capable to get re-election. And four years from now, whatever happens, you know, uh, we could see the world going through a bumpy a bump situation, but if he does well economically, uh, you know, he might run on the same things, you know, oh, China is running on China is doing this and everyone is taking advantage of the United States. But as long as the American economy is growing, it's good for everyone mm. because, you know, China sells more goods, Brazil sells more goods to China and everyone is happy. So in the sense, that's the best thing that Trump could deliver which I doubt that Biden could do on the second term. First of all, because Biden looks frail, mm. and I think that he's going to be a little too old That's right. for running the country. And Kamala Harris, as far as I know, uh, is a great individual, but, uh, and, you know, has some positives, but as uh, she is not a winner mm. from the electoral viewpoint, as far as I, as I see it. So the Democrats are going to have a hard time if Trump decides to come back again. And I can agree with you more, Dr. Marcus. And I think not only that some people in America miss Donald Trump, and I think what they miss the most is the Twitter messages notification on Donald Trump. You know, there's nothing more beautiful and more attractive than seeing how Donald Trump is going to get his Twitter back as soon as Elon Musk decides to become the major purchaser of the Twitter. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Marcus DeFritis. And Dr. Marcus, it's a senior fellow at Policy Center for the New South and focusing on international law and international relations in Brazil. And he's currently a visiting professor of international law and international relations at China Foreign Affairs University in Beijing, China. Again, Dr. Marcus, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. And again, we will love to have you back on the show again. And if there's an opportunity to rise, we will love to have you and Donald Trump both appear on our show to discuss more about the future of international community. Thank you, Dr. Mark.